Welcome to the Business of Agriculture, a podcast created to enlighten, inspire, and inform those who work in or depend on the world's most important endeavor, agriculture. Here's your host, Damian Mason. Greetings and thank you for being here on the Business of Agriculture podcast. It's me, Damian Mason. Got a great show for you today because I'm going to be talking about stuff that's forward looking about the industry of meat production in particular. And as the regulatory environment and the consumer marketplace continues to dictate changes that we're going to continue to make and have been forced to make, and we'll be probably making more so in the future regarding environmentalism and animal treatment using antibiotics. These are two very hot topics. And I've got two very hot guys on that are going to help us uh, delve into this. I've got T.J. Gatos, uh, an Ohio State educated doctor of veterinary medicine who specializes in poultry. I've got Mike Rinker, who's a, a, an Illinois guy, and he is with DPI Global. He's got a PhD. He does a lot on environmental um, uh, feed treatments, if you will. He'll get more into that later. So this is a real good topic because I think this is where this industry is going. We've got pressure on us right now as an industry. You know, Bill Gates just comes out with this book saying that rich countries like the United States should be eating 100 synthetic beef uh, very soon for global climate change. So with all this pressure from the elites and the billionaire class trying to dictate what you eat and what we in the business produce, I thought it was time to address a couple of topics that are commonly used against us, antibiotic usage and environmental degradation through livestock production. Before we get to my friends TJ and Mike, I want to remind you that this episode of the Business of Agriculture podcast is wherever you get your audios audio podcast, iTunes, Stitcher, uh, you know, SoundCloud, but also it's a video. You can go on the Damian Mason channel on YouTube and subscribe to the Damian Mason channel on YouTube. And uh, you'll get this every week in your inbox. It'd be great. I would love for you to do that. It helps my visibility. Also a uh, reminder that we got to pay the bills. Harvest Profit is a software solution for your agricultural enterprise. Software that makes your farming and agricultural enterprise as, as profitable as you want it to be. And and it's the right tool that you need. Harvestprofit.com is a place you can go and check out the software product. And you can even use it for 14 days for free in a trial. So uh, check out harvestprofit.com. And I do thank the good friend, Nick Horeb, for being my sponsor with Harvest Profit. Okay, TJ, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you. Mike, welcome to the show. Well, likewise, appreciate the opportunity here today, Damien. Okay, so uh, real quickly, DPI Global, your company, was a client of mine. That's how we uh, became acquainted. What's DPI do, Mike? Well, DPI uh, actually decided here this month, uh, celebrating our 65th year in business. And, uh, you know, throughout that time, our focus has been on manufacturing all natural technologies for various ag industries. Uh, our primary focus has been in the livestock and poultry industries. Uh, and our flagship technology would be microwave, but... Uh, our technologies are promoted there for their environmental performance and health benefits. And uh, really, uh, it's been an exciting time, uh, a lot of opportunity in this area. And uh, I think it's the acceptance of our, acceptance of our technologies has grown, uh, you know, currently marketing technologies in uh, around 50 countries around the world. So uh, have a good global presence and uh, understanding of what's going on around the globe. So. 
Yeah, so you're a global company, and I, I apologize, dear listener, he is in rural Illinois, and I mean, let's face it, that's the state that can't even pay their bills, so he's out there trying to make it so that you can hear him, but his audio is just a touch sketchy, but the focus of the company has been and always is, it's feed additives, essentially, right? Yes, sir. And feed additives that do what? Uh, these feed additives are going to be derived from all-natural phytogenic extracts to really help promote environmental performance and health benefits across livestock and poultry. Okay. Feed additives that, say it again, uh, do what? Help uh, provide environmental health and performance benefits across livestock and poultry. Okay. So... Uh, you have a product, and we'll get into that later, that uh, is on odor. We'll get into that. TJ, give me your background here. I already picked on Ohio State. I'll stop doing so. I will I will attempt to stop doing so. It's very hard for me. Go ahead. Uh, poultry veterinarian, originally from Ohio, uh, live in Dallas, Texas, uh, work as a poultry health consultant uh, in the U.S. and around the world. Okay. So, um, I had you on because your work and your company sort of position and, and what I see is, again, the future in, in agriculture. I see environmental push becoming more and more of a, a thing that impacts how we do what we do. You know, we saw waters of the United States and we've seen antibiotic regulation and we're seeing lawsuits in North Carolina uh, based on environmental issues uh, like, uh, uh, you know, um, Smith, uh, Smithfield and Murphy Barn, Brown Farms being suit, lawsuited between the environmental radical groups that really use this as a fundraising opportunity and then the trial lawyers, which, of course, uses fundraising opportunity. So I think we're at a real intersection here of where we've got the consumer We've got the uh, the activist groups, et cetera, on environmental issue. And then, of course, there's governance issues on uh, increasingly we're going to see in, uh, ESG, as it's called now, environmental, social and governance issues at these corporations. Well, we ultimately do work for corporations. You know, our customers are Cargill or Walmart or Kroger or who, who they may be. And they're going to dictate more and more how we produce what we produce. So I thought this was. Um, a real good thing for you because they want to be able to go and tell their consumer a story that feels good. So let's talk about what DPI does or did, and then we'll talk about where we're going. So let's start with the environmental stuff. Um, that's one of your big things. So you, first off, all of your products and your website, if I went to DPI Global, it says all natural, all natural, all natural. That's very conscious on your part. So Give me the background. You're not the marketing person, but why is it all natural and why does it matter? Well, you know, historically speaking, Damien, uh, DPI has been working with these phytogenic technologies since the company was founded. And so um, really delved into the livestock and poultry sector back in the mid 60s. And so, um, you know, as we began to focus on the environmental benefits, um, you know, everything that was done uh, was looking with these uh, plant extract type products, uh, you know, really, uh, I guess before uh, all natural was a big focus uh, in the industry, uh, you know, that's where DPI was focused. And so, you know, demonstrated that there was environmental benefits with these all natural technologies. And so continued to build upon that over the years and just uh, where the focus of the company has remained uh, since that time. And so, you know, continue to just, sorry, we're going to say. 
Yeah, well, you know what? You've used this phyto word a couple of times. I'll remind you that I'm a comedian with a degree in agricultural economics, and you've used some phyto word a couple of times. Now, my poor listener out here is saying, what the hell is he talking about? Okay. Uh, Well, to expand upon that, I guess when I say a phytogenic technology, just uh, simply a a plant-based product. And so, um, you know, we work with plants uh, that are native to the uh, southwest U.S. and parts of Mexico where they're grown. And we take these plants and then manufacture them into feed ingredients for the livestock and poultry industry. So uh, phytogenic uh, would just be simply a plant-based technology. All right. You're out there in the chicken barns uh, as a consulting veterinarian, uh, TJ. Um, You're saying, okay, we've got these phytogenic, which means they're plant-based, all-natural products. We we harvest them uh, or someone does that for us. We process them into these feed additives. We're going to put them in your chicken feed. What does it do? Uh, phytogenic or plant-based extracts, uh, depending on the type of product that it is, has different modes of action, uh, specifically related to uh, microaid. Uh, it's a saponin, which is a, a soap-like technology. Uh, it has impact in coccidiosis, uh, so a parasite in the, inte- in the chicken's intestines. Also has some antimicrobial and some uh, anti antimicrobial type uh, impacts. Additionally, there are some impacts on related to ammonia and ammonia reduction. So improving that house environment for the, for the chicken. Okay. So, uh, we got this plant-based product that, um, somebody years ago said, Hey, what if we threw this in the, in the chicken feed? And then what it does is it has, you and maybe is it the same product or different products that we're talking about here that have these different things that they do? One, you said, uh, eliminates coccidiosis. If you're not a livestock producer and you're not in this game, I can tell you that this is a big issue we face when we have uh, livestock because it's a bacteria, right? Tell me, tell me about no, this parasite. It's a parasite. It prevents them from gaining weight because it's it's getting the nutrients to the animal, right? Absolutely. Okay. Does that same product then eliminate or reduce ammonia? Uh, the same product. It is the same product. Yes. Okay. And then the average listener saying ammonia. I mean, like the stuff I put in my cleaning solution to do my windows. What are you talking about? Tell me about ammonia. Yeah, that's uh, it's the same ammonia that that smell that you use that that you see when you clean the windows. If you get that at a high level, it's uh, bad for the respiratory tract. It makes, uh, re- makes the animals more susceptible to respiratory disease. Yeah, you guys are both doing that thing because you're very highly trained and you work in this every day. You're forgetting that I've got a listener here that it produces cranberries that still doesn't understand. Let's go back to the basics. Why is this an issue? Chicken manure is very ammonia-ish. So the chickens, when you hold, when you have them in large quantity, right, that's our problem. Correct. The problem is that chickens are raised in barns and when they poop in that barn, there's, uh, and that, um, the, uh, the feces goes through bacterial changes. And during those changes, ammonia can be released or is released, uh, from that manure, uh, in the system. All right. So there you go. See, I guess I'd chime in real quickly. You think about this topic, uh, this time of the year is a really good, uh, uh, time of the year to talk about environmental issues just when we get into whether it be the chicken houses, the swine barns, uh, colder temperatures, colder environment, uh, you know, things get shut up a lot tighter. And so, you know, gas production, ammonia volatilization, these, these environmental factors, environmental issues uh, become a greater concern during these winter months. And so, uh, you know, definitely uh, 
on the producer's uh, mind uh, a little bit more in the forefront this time of year. Thank you. And by the way, I know I'm, I'm, I'm being a little facetious here, but I keep making you bring it down to the simple level because every time I have someone that's at your level, you talk about things that amongst your peers, of course, are just completely givens. And I, I must remind you that we've got somebody on here that sells tractors that doesn't really even think about uh, the respiratory and the digestive tract of the chicken and what that means to. So the average person sitting there saying right now, all right, so you guys created this product that reduces the odor, which redu- you know, which makes it so that these animals are emitting less methane and ammonia, right? That's what we're talking about, right? And it's an issue because what we just heard from both of you is that, well, it's because these are these animals are in these barns where this, you know, especially in February, like we're recording this right now, you know, they're they're not as wide open with the fans blowing and and changing the and doing air exchange, so you've got this buildup. Now the average person saying that's why those. Poor animals shouldn't be raised on those factory farms and those barns because they should be outside. Tell me why chickens aren't raised outside. I can go and give you one thing. Look at the weather. What just happened from Texas all the way up to North Dakota. Your chickens would be what we call frozen chickens right now. So, But they wouldn't be processed frozen birds. But what, tell, tell us about the reality here, guys. Yeah, the, the reason that we raise chickens inside and raise a lot of animals inside is we can control the environment. When we can control the environment, we can improve their performance and improve animal welfare. Think about people. Like you just said, we'd be outside, we'd be frozen. Would you rather be inside or would you rather be outside? The chickens that we have today are not the same chickens that are roaming around in in Asia. These aren't wild animals. They've been genetically selected uh, through breeding to, to perform the way that we want them to perform and they need to be inside and in comfortable housing. Yeah, well, generally they've been bred to be efficient so that we can create more protein for human consumption using less resources uh, and within 43 days from a hatching egg to a adult chicken. So um, tell me about this stuff you, you came up with this. Is there anybody else doing this? Because one of the big arguments against livestock you know, the nuisance lawsuits in North Carolina, uh, the plaintiff's attorneys grabbed a hold of people with using environmental groups as sort of their PR and propaganda thing and said, we need to sue these people. They're, they're out here causing you problems. We got to sue them. And then, I mean, millions and millions of dollars. And a person with three acres in the country with a house trailer on it got like $800,000 for property damages. And like that house trailer on three acres was worth $8,000. So this is a big problem and you're kind of at the forefront. Can we eliminate odor? It's a, it's, it's the end goal is to help eliminate odor and, and uh, you know, kind of mitigate the volatilization of these noxious gases. And, uh, you know, we're just one of kind of the tools that are available. Um, you know, I guess as we think about it, uh, you know, the animal industry has come at it from many different areas, whether it be just simple nutrition, uh, you know, formulating rations to better meet the nutrient requirements of the animal, so the fewer nutrients are excreted. Um, you know, a lot of effort has been placed in terms of uh, environmental management, uh, you know, environmental, uh, um, you know, fan control, uh, anaerobic digesters, a lot of... Uh, practices like that. And then, uh, you know, there are other feed technologies that have been demonstrated to help reduce uh, these other noxious gases. And so, um, you know, there's a lot of approaches being to help and provided to the end user there, to the grower, to uh, help control these odors and uh, 
you know, um, kind of so that we don't have these, uh, you know, nuisance lawsuits that, uh, that you've alluded to there. Well, the two arguments against livestock, I mean, even the person that says, I love pork chops, I love me, uh, uh, my fried chicken, but God, I wouldn't want one of those factory farms down the road for me because they stink. So the two arguments against our industry always boil down to animal welfare. You know, the animal rights activists take a video of somebody being mean to a farm animal and then put it and it just go, it's salacious. So it just goes crazy on the internet and they pay to put it out there. And the media is their willing ally because the media loves to get the viewership through controversy. And then the other one, of course, is environmental stuff. And environment does involve smell. Are we going to eventually see regulations on the kind of odors we can emit? Are we going to see that? I, I, I believe so. Government saying, if you have a farm, you, you can't emit. And it's hard. How do you track that? Is that what we're going to see? Yeah. yeah. No, I, 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 I would agree with your statement there. And, um, you know, in some areas that, uh, you know, we're already there. Um, you know, I think uh, as we deal and talk to some of our customers on the West Coast, uh, you know, California does, uh, you know, lead the charge in some of their regulations. And so, uh, um, you know, I, I think there are some, you know, uh, regulations in place, some rules uh, dealing with uh, odors that uh, really pushing in that area. And so uh, it's only going to become greater as we get farther into the future here. And so... Um, okay, so that regulation, so the, the government gets pushed by the nuisance lawsuit people. Now, nuisance, law, nuisance lawsuit people probably would like there to be a law, but they also need there to be a culprit because you can only go and extract money if you can, uh, you know, paint the picture of them. Can we eliminate odor? I don't know that we can. I don't think we can. Uh, hey, you know. follow, follow Uncle Bob into the restroom on Thanksgiving. It ain't just a livestock problem. This is a human problem. I mean, there's a certain reality here to waste has an odor. So can we get rid of it? I don't think so. So how, if we have regulatory stuff, we're either going to have animals or we're, with odor or we're not going to have it. We can reduce it, but can we eliminate it? Well, I think that's the distinction right there. You know, some of the technologies, some of the practices that I alluded to earlier there, um, you know, are definitely meant to reduce it, to completely eliminate it. Um, you know, you're going to have to have a very controlled, uh, airtight environment uh, that, you know, in reality is not practical or anything. And so, um, so I think that's uh, our, our responsibility to provide these technologies, provide these management practices that, uh, you know, are going to help reduce those levels down to uh, where, you know, they aren't an issue, they aren't a nuisance to the, to the neighbor. Well, of course, of course, that's always a matter of scale, because uh, if someone just wants to sue you, it's always going to be, uh, uh, you know, how, how much is too little. Question for you. Are lawsuits always going to be a thing in our industry? Yes or no? TJ. Uh, I think they're absolutely going to be a thing in our industry, Mike. especially in our country. Mike. I, I, would, I would say yes as well. I think just kind of given the environment where this, uh, um, you know, where, where, where are we headed to? Uh, it seems to be a very common, uh, uh, too happy world that we live in. Yeah. I mean, we didn't have this when I was a kid. Uh, you, you know, uh, it wasn't a thing that you had to worry about. It started being an issue of trespassing and things like that. But as far as being sued because you put manure on a field or sued because you, you know, various other things, it just started becoming a thing probably about when I was a kid and it became a more popular thing. We're going to change gears to antibiotics is uh, here in a second. But before we do, I want to remind everybody this episode of the business of agriculture podcast is brought to you by my good friends at Harvest Profit. 
Nick Horeb set out to create a company that would make your ag enterprise run more smoothly, but also more profitably. He's not an IT guy. He got into this to help customers in ag and created a tremendous product that helps your business work more fluidly, more profitably. So go to harvestprofit.com. You can read some articles that Nick writes, uh, but also you can see what this product can do for you. Picking up all kinds of new customers. He's got customers in 26 states and four Canadian provinces. So if it works for them, it'll work for you. Go to harvestprofit.com. All right. Um, Antibiotics. I find it funny, and you guys are, TJ's a little younger than us. Mike and I are probably closer to the same age. Uh, I hear people out here, I live half the year in, in uh, the, the suburbs of Phoenix. Well, those big factory farms, I just don't know. I wouldn't eat that food. I'm sure food was more wholesome back like on the farm you were raised on. And I'm like, <laughs> I remember we'd have a down cow. and They'd send me out there when I'm 10 years old with a bucket and a tractor and loader, lift her up and shoot her full of whatever stuff we had in the cow medicine fridge. And then if she didn't get better in three days, we'd like drag her onto a trailer and take her. And then, say, yeah, she'd go for human consumption. And you'd eat that meat. Oh, my God, that's not true. Yeah, that's true. And that was not a factory farm. And that was 45 years ago. So this idea that somehow we're using antibiotics. I just had dinner with some of my suburban friends and they talked about all the hormones and all the medicine we're using in these animals and it's not fit to eat. And I said, that's bullshit. We're more judicious with antibiotics than we've been in my lifetime. Am I accurate in that, Mike? That's very true. That's very true. If you look at some of the regulations that we have in place, given our Food and Drug Administration, uh, very regulated industry in terms of how those are administered and used. So, so kind of give me, if you will, a little history of antibiotics in, ag- in in animal production, and then we'll come to the to today. Because I just gave a little bit of my anecdotal history, but I'm not the expert you are. Uh, give me a little history of antibiotic usage in in livestock production. Well, you know, antibiotics have been used for many, many decades now, and uh, they've used, been used for both uh, therapeutic uses as well as promotion purposes. And, uh, um, you know, even given those, um, you know, there has been regulated regulated oversight uh, for, for many, many years. And so, um, you know, all these drugs have withdrawal periods associated with them uh, in terms about tissue residue. And so... Um, so I, I guess that mentality of, uh, you know, our meat being pumped up with antibiotics has uh, not always been true just because of the withdrawal concerns and everything. And so uh, there, there's never been that case. But uh, if we think about really where we're at today, um, you know, some big advances were made in the last five to six years, uh, given our veterinary feed directive that the FDA oversight provided. And, uh, um, you know, I think you mentioned it earlier, there's a very focus on the just judicious use of uh, medically important antibiotics in the food producing industry. And that's really what that targeted. Okay. So I just painted a picture using anecdotes that the, I, I was raised on your basic, simple, nice Midwestern family farm and all this. And the idea that somehow we didn't stick uh, drugs into these cattle is ridiculous. We did. And, and it was less, there was less oversight and there was less, uh, you didn't keep records. And, and, and also you mentioned the thing called withdrawal period to the person listening to this, that does not what you're talking about. The reason we should tell them your meat is more safe today in terms of antibiotics than it has ever been. And one of the reasons is the withdrawal period. Explain that. Uh, just simply there, once these antibiotics are administered to an animal, 
they can be administered for a certain length of time. And then there's a withdrawal period. So a certain number of days or certain time period before that animal is slaughtered for meat production, um, then no antibiotics can be administered during that withdrawal period. And so that results in no tissue residue or, you know, the, uh, I guess the, 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 the concerns that uh, there, there was a antibiotics in our food. And so we're eliminating that because of the withdrawal period. Yeah. And so we're using a lot less antibiotics now. And a lot of consumers don't know that than we ever have. And in the old days, you talked about two things. One was when we actually had to treat an animal and maybe you'd treat it and then say, okay, it's not working, stick it on the truck. And there was no withdrawal period and they just stuck it on there. So we got that eliminated. And then the other one we would do from a sort of growth promoting standpoint, I believe the product was tetracycline that we used in poultry. We'd put it in the drip lines for their waterers and just gave it to them all the time because then the chickens stayed healthy and then they grew better. Am I right? That's right. Uh, currently no antibiotics that are important for human use are allowed to be used for growth promotion only for uh, treatment of disease. Yeah. So in the old days, TJ, isn't that true? We just basically put the chickens on a steady ration of this through their water all the time. This is certainly, I, I wasn't alive then, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that I'm pretty sure that's true. Yeah. Okay. I know you're a young guy. So what happens now on these poultry operations in terms of usage of antibiotics? Are we using them at all? Yes, we're using antibiotics in poultry production, um, but we use them judiciously. Roughly 60% of the poultry in the United States is raised without antibiotics. Okay, roughly 60% without antibiotics at all. And then the 40%, I see the, the ads that say no antibiotics ever. So how do I, how can we, what's, what's happening on the difference on that? So the ones that have to get treated is because of the, the barn is sick. Is that what's happening or what's going on there? Um, what's happening is that uh, for treatment of coccidiosis, uh, that parasite we talked about earlier, that's a huge problem in, in poultry and uh, agriculture, animal agriculture in general. Uh, a lot of the drugs that are used to treat that are considered antibiotics because of the way they're uh, produced. Uh, so the vast majority of antibiotics that are used are actually antiparasitics, anticoccidials, okay. and they have no use in humans. Okay, so the big concern is the consumer that lives out here in the suburbs near, near me in Phoenix says, well, they're giving these drugs to these cows, chickens, and pigs, and then when my kid gets uh, sick, then they're built up resistance. And what you just said is, the difference is? Yeah, the vast majority of drugs we're using, of antibiotics we're using, have no, uh, no value in human medicine. Because it's a completely disparate, different thing. Humans don't get coccidiosis. We don't have the bacteria or the, uh, the, the parasite in our gut. Correct. Okay. Um, <clears throat> that's the issue on superbugs, because that's where ag gets blamed a lot. Um, are we really actually doing anything that's creating superbugs by creating uh, 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 okay, tolerance or um, uh, building up, uh, what do they call it, uh, creating um, uh, uh, antibiotic resistance, Mike. DJ, that was the concern. I, I mean, really, uh, um, the concern with the use, even back in the day when we were using more for growth promotion purposes, uh, the concern was resistance development. And uh, you know, I think some of the points TJ alluded to there in terms of uh, those being used today for food producing animals are drastically different than those used on the human side. And so 
the, the superbugs, this resistance development, uh, it is not the issue that uh, the media would like to make it out to be. DJ, you were saying something, sorry. Uh, you're right. Uh, you know, anytime you use an antibiotic, there's a risk of creating, uh, creating a resistant organism for, by using the antibiotic, which is why there's veterinary oversight for the use of these antimicrobials. And we don't take, as an industry, we don't take using them lightly. Uh, you know, we have a responsibility to the animals in our care. So if there's sick animals that, and there's an option to treat them, we have to treat them uh, because they're, we have to care for these animals. Uh, but we use so much less and we use them in, than we used to, and we use them in such a way that helps reduce the risk of, uh, of antimicrobial resistance. Where are we? Okay, so antimicrobial resistance is the issue by it comes about with antibiotic overusage, which we are not now doing, as you pointed out. Where are we heading? Antibiotic use, like I said, in the old days, I know that right now it's hard to get some of the stuff. You've got to have a lot more, you know, in the old days, it was kind of like uh, you could get your hands on it pretty easily. Where are we going? I think what you're indicating is that part of this DFD is the veterinary client relationship. And so that's providing that oversight in terms of how these uh, antimicrobial agents are used. And so, um, you know, where we're going, I think, um, is, um, you know, they'll be continued to use as they are now, um, you know, in animal welfare, uh, animal husbandry needs where we need to maintain the health of these animals. And so, uh, you know, there's going to be continue to be that need for them down the road. DPI Global, you guys were sort of at the forefront 50, 60 years ago of grabbing some plant-based product, phytogenic technology, as you called it, that you put in the animal feed and it kept them healthier. And then you have this uh, idea that you've also been able to reduce the gas emission from them. What's DPI going to do to help us use less antibiotics? You've got a product in the pipeline? Well, as we understand and our research program is focused on the benefits of our technologies, uh, um, you know, that research has focused on the performance side and the, been able to demonstrate that, uh, you know, there are options uh, to these antimicrobial agents. Uh, you know, the performance responses that we've seen across multiple species, uh, you know, demonstrate these technologies can provide that alternative, but uh, really just the uh, nutrition industry in general, um, we're seeing a big push towards alternatives, um, you know, looking at uh, many other different plant extracts, looking at other uh, alternatives um, that, uh, you know, can be used to uh, provide some of those similar uh, health benefits these uh, microbial agents uh, would be typically used for. <clears throat> Paint me a picture. So you think there's, you're saying there is going to be, we're going to continue to develop stuff that's not antibiotics that can be used to, to make animals healthier and efficient converters of grain to meat or grass to meat uh, without using antibiotics. Do antibiotics go away? DJ? No, I don't think they go away. They don't go away. I think the, their use is going to uh, steadily decrease, uh, especially through consumer pressure and, and more judicious use. Um, but they're not going to go away. They're a precious resource and, and we need them. Got it. I agree with you. Uh, paint me a picture of meat production 20 years from now. We'll stick with TJ. Are the vegans, animal rights radicals going to win? Are all those chicken barns you work in, are they eventually going to just be like ghost towns? Uh, are, are we going to all be eating plant-based meat? I don't think so. Uh, if you look around the world, uh, uh, look in Europe, for example, they've, 
tend to be ahead of the United States in uh, animal agriculture uh, in, in social movements. And not, not, not in production, generally, not in production. No, not in production, but in the, the social aspect of their production, they tend to be ahead of us yeah. uh, for good or for better or for worse. Uh, but if you look at that population, uh, the amount, the percentage of people that are vegan or vegetarian caps at a certain number, yeah. and it doesn't exceed that. Uh, again, if you look into the developing world, the, the, one of the first things that people want to consume is protein, animal protein. So I, I think as we move forward, uh, I talked about that in my book. I talked about that in my book. That very point is that, oh man, it's hard when it, the vegans cap out around a few percent of the population and there's more people that will say they are, but there's a real thing about humans. We are omnivores and, and I know, uh, and you can say, oh, we're old farmer. I get hungry. I get hungry for protein. So, uh, Mike, Animal-based uh, uh, protein obviously is very important for you and I. We like it. We are in the you're in the business of it. Uh, you know the societal pressure on on how we raise it. Whatever there are going to be more of these um, small um, no antibiotics ever. No, um, you know, out there in a pen in the pasture. Is that where we're going to go? Or you think that that's going to occupy a certain level of uh, production and never probably get above it? What's your thoughts? Uh, I think um, if you look at how the trends have evolved in the last several years, um, you know, I, I think it's continued to increase, but I think we're going to come a point where, um, you know, we have to find that balance there, you know, with the growing population that everyone really wants to talk about, you know, being able to provide that adequate protein that people need and everything. And so we're going to continue to need some production practices, uh, uh, that we have in place today. And uh, so I, I think we're going to come to a point where, um, you, you know, it's going to be a balance of, of everything, but, uh, you know, I, I think it's going to peak at some point here where, um, you know, it, what, it goes back to that old thing I've heard that, you know, what people say they want, what they're willing to pay for, uh, um, really comes into play. And so I, I think, uh, that, that, that's why again, whether it be the vegans, uh, the, the all natural there, uh, um, you know, it's going to kind of plateau at some point. Yeah, I, I guess there's a real thing there. I, I believe the niche has a, there's always growth in niche to a certain point. And then, and then it gets to where you've grabbed all the people that are going to be early adopters. You've grabbed all the people that are going to say, I don't want, I, I want my animal, my meat to never have an antibiotic, whatever. But what about GMOs? Okay. We can genetically engineer a stalk of corn from to plant that seed and it'll have resistance to cutworm. So we don't have to use insecticide. That's a very good thing. A lot of the anti-GMO people don't understand that because they've heard from the propaganda, the benefit of a genetically modified organism, a genetically engineered corn plant is that you don't have to use insecticide because it's got resistance bred into it through genetic engineering uh, and, and uh, to make it so that you don't have to use the insecticide because it now is resistant to cutworm. Could we do that with chickens? Could we make it so that we've got a chicken that is coccidiosis resistant to genetic engineering? Theoretically you could, uh, but the, but animals are complicated creatures. And so if you give resistance to coccidiosis, for example, uh, there's a pretty good chance that you're going to make them susceptible to uh, a viral disease or a bacterial disease in the process. So you're saying that you monkey with the one thing and you're going to then open up the floodgates on three more things. But that's a uh, very real potential. Yeah. 
So we can breed or genetically engineer, put traits in that make it so it's coccidiosis resistant, but now it's got polio or whatever the thing might be. Yeah, okay. Is that we're talking about? That's what we're talking about. Mike, we know that consumers right now, maybe not in your neighborhood, but depending on where you are, my neighborhood out here has a Whole Foods, a Trader Joe's, and a fancy grocery store and all that. They'll go and pay a premium for no antibiotics ever. What if that just becomes the standard and will it? I think that, you know, for no antibiotics ever, the, well, we know that more chicken is being produced without antibiotics yeah. than is being marketed under that label. We've already saturated the market. Okay. Kind of like cage-free eggs. Cage-free eggs became a thing that commanded a premium. And then Kroger, McDonald's, and a bunch of these customers said, well, we're going to go all cage-free eggs. So the industry ramped up cage-free egg production to where it doesn't even make you any money uh, because they, they've they saturated the amount of cage-free egg marketing that was necessary. Same thing happening on no antibiotics ever. That's what you're saying. Yes. Got it. Um, I got one last thing for you. What are some things that we didn't get to? Mike, you're in an obscure industry. You're out here in a feed additives. You're trying to take smell out of cow poop. You're trying to take, uh, you're trying to take antibiotics out of the pig barn. What through feed additives? It's noble. It's interesting, but it's also pretty much under the radar for most everybody. What's one last thing that you would like the listener to know the customer to know? Well, I, I guess one thought that comes to mind, Dane, you know, really maybe given the current environment situation that we're in with this whole pandemic, um, you know, regardless of which side of the fence you're sitting on there, we, we've heard a lot about trying to follow that science, making our decisions and everything. And uh, so, you know, I, I guess as we work with these, you know, obscure technologies, um, uh, you know, really it, it's, as we think about trying to mitigate some of these odors, uh, you know, our, our ag industry is a very science-based industry. Uh, the recommendations, decisions that we're making regarding nutrition, regarding management, regarding animal welfare, regarding the judicious use of antimicrobial agents, there, there is that science behind it. And so um, hopefully we're able to promote that, able to kind of sift through some of this other information that's shared when we get to those nuisance lawsuits that we were talking about earlier and uh you know, allow the science that our industry has kind of provided here uh, uh, really let us kind of make the decisions and uh, help, uh, you know, remove some of that emotion of the decision there that our consumers uh, have really kind of through social media and uh, avenues like that to really uh, try to, uh, you know, cloud, uh, you know, what our industry looks like. TJ. One last thing, one thought that we didn't get to about uh, what we're doing, the work you're doing, uh, something that you see that the average, something you see on the horizon. Give me something here. What are our customers and our and our viewers and our listeners need to hear? So I think it's always good to be reminded that we don't use steroids or hormones in the production of poultry in the United States, uh, outlawed by by federal law. That's always a, a good uh, thing to remember. And I think it's important to remember that the people that work in animal agriculture are in it because we really do love animals and we, we really want to care for them. And animal welfare and judicious use of antibiotics is something that's really important to the industry, even though it may not sound like that on the news. Um, we, it's something we're very passionate about. 
Yeah, I, I actually agree with that. I tell people when they harken back to this good old days, and I said, I'll take you to the what you would call factory farm, uh, uh, and I can show you that those animals, I'm a dairy farm kid, are in better condition, and uh, they have herd health protocols put in place, and those animals are in better condition, better cared for, better treated. They've got brushes and air blowing on them and sprinklers when it's hot. Trust me, these animals are in better, uh, better care than they've ever been. Uh, you know, back in the old, what people love to believe is the good old days. So, all right, his name's TJ Gatos, and uh, my other guest is Mike Rinker. They're both with DPI Global. If anybody has a question, how do they find you? Uh, more than welcome to reach out through our website at www.dpiglobal.com. Um, contact information can be found there. Uh, and, and that's how you can do it. And you know what? They're, uh, they're good dudes. And you know, maybe we'll, we'll have another animal production issue here in another year or two, and I'll bring them back on. Till then, reminder that this episode of the Business of Agriculture podcast is sponsored by Harvest Profit. Go to harvestprofit.com to figure out what this software technology can do for you, for your ag enterprise. You know, they're a growing company that just got bought uh, by John Deere. Why? Because Harvest Profit makes a product that people want because it makes their life and their operation more improved, more, more profitable. It makes their life better. That's what you want. Go to harvestprofit.com and see what they can do for you. Till next time, it's the business of agriculture. His name's Mike Rinker. His name's TJ Gives. Thanks for being on, guys. Thank you. Thank, Thank you for having us. All right. Till next time, it's the business of agriculture. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Business of Agriculture, please share it with your network. Be sure to connect with Damien on LinkedIn, like his Facebook fan page, and follow him on Instagram and Twitter. For speaking inquiries or to purchase Damien's books, Food Fear, or Do Business Better, go to DamienMason.com.